Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knudsen, and this is We Like Movies Top 100 AFI List Number 76, Forrest Gump, a Bob Zemeckis joint. The only Bob Zemeckis movie to land on this list, crazily enough. It seems like Back to the Future should be on this list, doesn't it? It does seem like it should be on this. I, I, I'm sort of, I'm pretty darn surprised, actually, now that I think about it. Um, it wasn't on the original Top 100 either, right? No. But it's certainly, I feel like that's just one of the most like non-controversial, most beloved films of all time. And also is considered one of the greatest screenplays of all time. Bizarre exclusion considering it's it's got like a 100% approval rating from everyone. No one dislikes Back to the Nobody Future. Nobody dislikes Back to the Future, no. Whereas I feel like Forrest Gump tends to divide people a little bit. Although Forrest Gump did win Best Picture, so credit where credit's due. But once we get to the end of this journey, you know, three or four years from now, Um, we should go through and really talk about the stuff that we're surprised isn't on here and the stuff that should be on here. Not crazy left field personal favorites or cult films necessarily, but just, you know, real like, you know, obvious kind of like softballs like Back to the Future that are just it seems weird to not have them involved in this conversation. Yeah, and so like you said, Forrest Gump does tend to divide people, especially in retrospect. I mean, I, I don't I don't remember too much about when it came out in 94 uh you know i i remember this and pulp fiction and shawshank redemption and i remember even early on sort of loving shawshank and pulp fiction more um but that was probably a couple years after the fact um i just do remember forrest gump was a obviously huge cultural thing and it seemed to initially be universally beloved and the sort of hatred and the division came in retrospect do you feel like that's the case Matt yeah that's probably fair because it was like like you said pretty much universally beloved whereas you know Shawshank wasn't a big hit and Pulp Fiction obviously had it it had a lot of things kind of going against it in terms of being able to appeal to a wide audience although actually was a pretty darn big hit all things considered for an R-rated film and then Quiz Show which is a movie that I absolutely adore and another movie that I think deserves to be on this list just was a little too kind of niche and indie and then uh, uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral would have been the fifth nominee that year and uh, was also a very big hit and was a very accessible movie and Mm -hmm. so I think it just goes to show you that I mean I've been resentful of Forrest Gump for a really long time because I feel that all four of those movies are better than Forrest Gump having rewatched it now for the first time in probably well over a decade I don't know if it's necessarily that Gump is so much inferior you know it's it's not that Forrest Gump is a bad movie or doesn't deserve to have won best picture or doesn't deserve to be one of those five or doesn't deserve to be on this list necessarily it's an example of how strong that year was right yeah it's not it's not that Gump is a bad movie it's that there was an incredible amount of great movies in 1994 it was just an ex- yeah. extraordinarily strong year. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I wonder how much deep down the the any resentment towards Forrest Gump is based entirely on the competition that year. You know, people were. I was a Shawshank guy. You know, over the years, Pulp Fiction has definitely pulled ahead of Shawshank in, in in my personal rankings. Yeah, I wonder if it was a weaker year and Forrest Gump was sort of clearly the universal favorite. If there wouldn't be as much, you know, hatred spewed towards it. Uh, you know, in the in in the years following. Well, this was one of the films on this list that I was most that I've most been looking forward to talking to you about and revisiting because, like I said, it's a movie I hadn't seen in a really long time, and I was like, "That is a movie that is overdue for a reevaluation on my part because I feel like I've been talking shit for a while. It's time to have a real sort of like heart to heart about Forrest Gump." 
Yeah, I've been talking shit for a while as well. And like you, I, I don't think I'd seen it in, in over a decade, maybe 15, 20 years even. Rewatching it, I have, I have a lot of feelings about this movie now. Mm-hmm. And I think they're fairly complex. The viewing experience, especially watching it alone, just with, with all this, this history, the movie has two sort of distinct parts for me, and we'll get into that later. But do you just want to start with sort of your general, like, anything surprise you a lot about this last viewing? I was surprised how much I liked it. I, I sat here the other night, watched it by myself, just like all alone, really paid attention, and I was struck by how I didn't feel the distraction to like look at my phone or go, you know, get a snack mm-hmm. or futz around or get on the computer or start looking at Wikipedia to get trivia. Like I, I was really surprised at how... I kind of got swept up in it all and was just really struck by how strong all of the central relationships in the movie are, how strong the performances are, and how much they all kind of worked for me. And it's so important that that part of the film is as strong as it is because the protagonist is so untraditional, right? Mm-hmm. In that he yeah. doesn't really he doesn't really have an arc, he doesn't really change. He kind of remains that same level of decency throughout the whole thing. And that usually would be kind of like the kiss of death in terms of like introducing, you know, like needing conflict in your story. But all of the other characters swirling around him are all so dense and complex and uh, troubled. Mm -hmm. And they bounce off of him in such interesting ways that I was like, this is all really working. This is all very entertaining. This is all kind of fun. And I, I sort of like, you know, let it all go. Like I lost myself in it and didn't think about it too hard. Didn't really think about the the context of how I felt about it over the years. Didn't really think about the political implications of any of it. Uh, and we can get into like whether the movie is conservative or, you know, anti-liberal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the kind of like the cleanliness of the storytelling and the strength of all the central relationships really uh, kind of worked for me this time around in ways that it hadn't in the past. Yeah, I mean, before we get into any sort of nitpicks or, or contextual shit, uh, the movie is so technically proficient in, in, in every aspect. Like you said, the, the acting is incredible. Uh, just the way it's filmed and, and the seamlessness of, of the CGI is pretty incredible throughout the movie, especially for you know the mid-90s. And so, I, you know, I do agree with you. The, watching this movie is, is a breeze, and it's, it's really easy and sort of you know, inevitable that you're, you're going to get swept up in it, especially um, because the non-Force characters are so complex and it really works uh, relationship-wise, uh, especially with Jenny and, and Lieutenant Dan. And even Bubba and definitely Sally Field as as Mrs. Gump. You know that said, I you know the first half even there's a lot of shit that bothers me, and I think a lot of it has to do with with the cameo stuff and and the historical figures. Did that annoy you at all in the first half of the movie, Matt? I don't know if if annoyed is the right word, but I will say throughout the entire thing, the stuff that I felt was the weakest or had aged the worst was sort of ironically some of the stuff that got the biggest responses back in the 90s which is a lot of like the presidential stuff and um and you're right i think the special effects for the most part have aged pretty darn well but this i remember in 94 and even the year you know the years afterwards people were just like god can you believe they were able to insert tom hanks (laughs) into the like people it blew people's minds at the time it was like and that was one of the reasons that the visual effects were sort of considered so groundbreaking now looking back on it they're pretty 
clunky, right? Like, I mean, I know it's easy to nitpick here 24 years later, but to me, those are the visual effects that don't work. And uh, as a result, I find some of that stuff to be the more kind of like annoying or disposable sequences. Yeah, I think the visual effects are fine, but I also, I mean, I wrote down in my notes, this is a historical Ready Player One, right? Like, this is just, <laughs> this is member berries for, for baby boomers throughout the whole thing. And it's yes. like, and like the the film works so well as a as a relationship piece as, as this guy's story that I just I, I always felt taken out of the movie when they had the, like the we have the Elvis thing right there's the Bear Bryant thing and there's you know all these '60s <laughs> yeah. figures like it's so unnecessary to the plot it felt like it's like oh we figured out this technology and and we wanted to show it off as much as we can even though it doesn't really make any sense right yeah I I don't really need the presidential stuff the Elvis thing I think is kind of cute just because it's so sort of like sweet and disposable and um and the fact that like his mom doesn't want him to watch like when they walk by the tv and they see the dance later she's like this is not for children and the fact that kurt russell does the voice of elvis i think is kind of <laughs> kind of cute yeah I, I suppose. but but you're right it like all that stuff is like it, yeah it literally is just baby boomer porn kind of i did write like you know 45 minutes hour to the movies like what is this movie about like what's the point uh, of this movie because it does I don't know I mean it's fun but it does sort of feel pretty aimless early on because it's just like these things are happening to him he has no agency he's not making any decisions everything that's happened is 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 random a random occurrence and then especially like the Vietnam stuff I don't know especially in that guy's no you know already having in my mind is like a baby boomers wet dream like the sort of glossing over of of like the Vietnam stuff is so toothless yeah, I mean it's it's Vietnam for a PG thirteen container, and uh, and the fact that it's all I think it's all shot in like South Carolina as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, not that it looks horrible. I mean it was, it doesn't necessarily not look like Vietnam, but it does feel a little bit. Yeah, toothless is probably a good word, and just a little too small and contained. I mean this is you know it's, it's a modestly budgeted movie. It's it's certainly not a low budget movie. But it is clearly a movie that nobody expected to go on to make seven hundred million dollars. I think they, I think there was like a fifty-five million dollar budget on it. Obviously, a lot of that went to the visual effects budget. But yeah, I mean, it it definitely doesn't feel. You know, it's not platoon. Um, but that, but it's also just a chapter in the story. You know, it doesn't need to overwhelm the story. And I think it's, I mean, it's exciting. Like all the uncommon valor stuff when he's pulling all all the guys out of the um, the jungle. Um, I think all that stuff is pretty exciting and, and pretty fun. And, and if the movie does sort of like have a point, if there is an underlying message, because you're you're saying it's kind of just meandering and there isn't really anything, any sort of like bright, hot center at the middle of it. It is just a story about like the power of decency, right? Like he, at the end of the day, he's a simpleton, but he has a moral compass and his decency carries him through to the end. And he becomes obviously a millionaire and finally gets the girl of his dreams and you know all of his friends come to love him i mean he's he he's he's a silly simple character who has no arc but the fact that he has this this like straight and narrow decency which i think is kind of a bit of a you know a comment on traditional americana or whatever right yeah um, carries him through and that that there's that's made that's perhaps problematic but i do think that the movie is a little bit of a commentary on just the, I don't know, the American ideal or whatever, or the American experience. Yeah, and, and again, like, that's fine in a vacuum, and that works in a vacuum, but I feel like the implications, given how 
how much they focus on you know the culture of the time and the changing of uh, of the culture the implications are just a little too much for me and you know we can get into the politics i i do think that stuff's problematic especially you know take these meaningful events and subjects and sort of glossing over them with a wink you know whether it's civil rights or vietnam or even like sexual assault like it's it's you know sometimes it's a little tough to have this you know, simpleton just sort of gliding, gliding through all this stuff and not stopping to dwell on the importance of it. You know, I don't know, like even like the Black Panther meeting stuff felt just a little icky to me, just how sort of playful it was. Right. And how much it was played for a laugh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Everything is really boiled down to its most simplistic <laughs> essence. <laughs> yeah. But then again, that's that's kind of how this guy would see the world. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that's right. Like as a character study, it works. It works beautifully. But I don't know, the, the politics of it is like if you keep your head down and be decent and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and avoid change and you know stick to the 1950s American ideals, you're gonna be you're gonna be all right. And just the fact that the the one character who embraces the counterculture uh, literally is murdered by AIDS for it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the movie never actually it never calls it out, right? It never calls out this virus that she's yeah. referring to. But that is that's the implication. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the movie set the, the the now the 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 quote unquote real time or whatever is 1981. I think when he's sitting on the park bench is taking place in 1981. So that the time timeline worked out would work out that way. They never touch upon whether she's scared that Forrest would have the virus or that Haley Joel Osment would have the virus, right? Like they just kind of gloss right over the top of that. But yeah, I, I got the impression that that she you know she had hiv and that's what it was leading to yeah i mean they have that conversation where she's like we have this thing and no one knows how to cure it there's no cure for it it's gonna right but she's not at all she's not remotely concerned that forrest may have contracted it because obviously they had a child together clearly they were having unprotected sex right yeah you think so but there's also the the chance that it wasn't his kid and maybe they didn't really have i don't know i'm sure there's some conspiracy theories out there but we don't need to get into the weeds (laughs) on this stuff (laughs) that's fair I, I, I do want to say, you know, I, I do have all these nitpicks and, you know, the politics of it are a little bit concerning and problematic. And if this movie was made today, there would be so many freaking blog posts about it. It is a sign of a of a different time. I mean, it, we're only talking 24 years and, you know, obviously the 90s weren't the 70s. But I, I did watch the film and have a feeling, a real feeling of. God, we just we just don't make them like this anymore, you know. Not not for better, you know. Not that that's a bad thing or a good thing. It's just oh, you just don't really see movies like this anymore, you know. Fifty-five million dollar films that are like epic in scope that have a really kind of like very simple, straightforward moral compass to them um, that just sort of span decades and are are very kind of like blunt but still kind of uh, endearing in the way that they draw you along with these sweeping James Horner scores it, it just we just kind of don't make movies like this anymore it, I was I was struck by that it was it's this is really a, a bit of a of a 90s time capsule for sure it's not as zeitgeisty as Pulp Fiction or even Schindler's List or Fargo or something necessarily but there is something very much mid 90s about this movie yeah I mean we've talked about the death of the the middle budget movie quite a bit over the years and, and this is definitely a good example of, a, of something that we don't really see anymore from Hollywood I do want to say like 
all of my nitpicks aside, the second half of the movie just won me over like gangbusters. Uh, <laughs> you know, starting basically with, with the shrimp boat and Lieutenant Dan coming back and pretty much everything after that was just so endearing and so lovely and uh, so heartwarming and, and extremely emotional with all, you know, all, all the character work going on that you, you can't help but fall in love with this movie. And, and it was at that point, I was like, okay, I, I get it because I was ready to just come out fire and be like what the fuck yeah i mean i'm I'm with you like i was pretty much on board the whole time in spite of myself but the second half is is truly superior like it's because the most interesting part of the movie for me is the lieutenant dan relationship and all the stuff on the shrimp boat and him you know shouting at the hurricane and uh you know making his peace with god or whatever and when he's sitting on the side of the boat and says you know i never thanked you for saving my life and then he doesn't. He just hops over the side of the boat and goes for a swim. Um, and then when he shows up at the wedding at the end, like that character to me is really like that's the movie's secret weapon. It's it's incredibly moving. All that's it's it's crazy that Gary Sinise never went on to really be a movie star or even like a, a major like character actor. Hey, CSI New York has a lot of fans. Well, that's the thing is he went on to become a very, very successful television actor. He made, he, I think he made like 200 episodes of that CSI New York and he's done very well for himself. And he also, he started the Lieutenant Dan band, which, uh, <laughs> who apparently travel around the world and entertain USO troops and stuff. And he's, he's gotten like presidential medals of honor for his, his outreach work. And so he's clearly a very, you know, decent guy and very accomplished. You know, he came out of the Steppenwolf Theater, I think, right? With Malkovich? Yeah. Out of Chicago. So, but he hadn't really done too much. He'd only done a couple films before this and just boom, right out of the gates, the Oscar nomination. And then right after this was Apollo 13. And he was really, he was heating up there in, in the mid to late 90s. And it just never really materialized, which is which is interesting because this is just such a towering performance. I mean, it's, who did he lose to? He lost to, did he lose to Martin Landau, I guess, for Ed Wood? That sounds right, right? That sounds correct, sure. And that's yeah. hard to argue with, but this is this is the epitome of of an you know an oscar caliber supporting role but i just i just can't say enough about his performance here and the complexity of that character and how yeah just how moving it is when he shows up on the dock in his wheelchair and and hanks you know jumps off the boat to go over and shake his hand yeah it's so um, good it's just it's a beautiful thing yeah it's really it's really strong yeah and robin wright is fantastic and sally field is also fantastic um the jenny character is is obviously pretty complex and has a ton of demons and i think they play it off pretty well throughout the second half of the movie and it is super emotional once we get little forest there and and jenny passes away and he's you know under the tree with her with her grave like it's, oh. it's there's a lot to it's you know you got a that's little his dusty oscar in the scene. room yeah that's his oscar scene right there i mean it's 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 hard it's hard to argue with hanks when he when he wants to sort of like bring out that spontaneous when he wants to choke back that emotion on camera, he he's better than anybody. You know, it made me think of the uh, of the ending of Captain Phillips. Yeah, I was just about for to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. 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 always I mean, sticks the, guy, the landing. Oh God, yeah, and and he he can he can do that. You know, s- trying to keep his emotions in check and then losing you know himself uh, better than anybody when he really wants to bring it. And watching, I was so moved by the end of the film and so surprised how much I enjoyed it and so just like impressed by hanks that i the minute it was over i got up and i turned on philadelphia and i sat there and i watched all of philadelphia because <laughs> i was just like here we go i'm it's in a mood kissing you so insane yeah i probably i mean if i had to do over again i think i would have gone i would have flip-flopped the order <laughs> yeah 
but um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think we talk about it enough. How incredible it is! I mean, it's few people have two Oscars to begin with, but to do it back to back like that was really kind of unprecedented. And um, I don't know. I mean, Philadelphia is not necessarily a movie that I think has aged all that well. It's a weird film. I don't know if it's one of Jonathan Demme's best movies. I don't know if it's something that should end up on a list like this necessarily. But it is hard to argue with both he and Denzel. Because Denzel's playing such an unlikable, you know, kind of homophobic character in that movie. And I don't know, their relationship is just so fascinating. And Hanks has the... Sorry, I don't, I don't mean to make this a Philadelphia conversation. <laughs> but he's got this. he's got the scene where he, like, loses himself in the opera music and stuff and while Denzel's watching him and yeah the guy um you know i think that guy's gonna go far in this business i think he's got a future ahead of him that hangs well i was i was thinking about his performance here and you know the tightrope of this character is oh my god really interesting i i just wonder if it came out today if he would get a lot more flack for sort of playing generic simpleton guy right because it, it it is sort of a broad choice he makes with with like the accent and and, and the slowness of it. By gosh, he, he really commits to it and found something that that works throughout. So many places he could have gone with with this role and with this script, and it, it, it works really well. Even though it is sort of like I said, broad. I, I I do think there would be some potential backlash if it came out today. Although we don't have to rehash that if it came out today conversation. All that much more because it's not not terribly important. <laughs> it's Simple what Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. yeah, it's what Robert Downey Jr. brings up in Tropic Thunder. It's you know it's the uh, Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man thing. Right? You know it's just walking that very very thin tightrope, and only guys that are at the top of their game can can thread that needle. And uh, and yeah, Sean Penn, who apparently was on the shortlist of people courted for this role, just took it too far with something like I Am Sam. So um, it must be terrifying as an act, you know, to commit to something like this. And apparently from in my research, I found that um, Tom Hanks actually sort of reverse engineered his the heaviness of the accent from the kid who plays him as a child. Okay. So he basically was was thinking of going a little bit softer on the accent, but the kid who plays him as a child, that's his real accent. Yeah. And that's how he really talked because he's a kid from the South. And he was just like, okay, if that's me as a kid, I'm going to have to match what he's doing. So yeah. that's where that accent came from. And you also, like, it's tough because he has to belie some intelligence behind that character, too. Like, you can't be... You know, there has to be. He makes decisions, and he has some emotional intelligence, and he he's able to get through in life. So you can't be like Simple Jack totally, but like it's like yeah, it's it's a crazy tightrope to walk. And and I was just thinking about how difficult it was. And you know, there's probably only one guy who could have done it this well, and he ended up making the movie. So. And this is also in the midst of a crazy run he goes on in the late nine, the mid to late nineties, and then the early two thousands, where he I think he makes. I want to say he made like 10 movies in a row that all made, you know, 100 million plus at the box <laughs> office. I think it was, I want to say it was like Forrest Gump through the Lady Killers or something like that. Jesus, yeah. And yeah, he just he just was running the table at this point in his career. And, you know, obviously you win two Oscars back to back and then just hit, 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 hit all the way up through the Lady Killers. Not that the Lady Killers, you know, killed his career or anything but that was kind of like the end of that magical run he was on it's uh it's super impressive um yeah anything to say about about robert zemeckis here um just i mean what this came at uh i don't not really an interesting point in his career but what was what was the last movie made before this was it like back to the future three or uh that's i want to say was it uh, death becomes her something oh that that? could have been yeah yeah death becomes her makes sense that's probably 93 or 92 right 
Yeah, I mean, Robert Smex is such an interesting guy, uh, or just has had such an interesting career. Yeah, it looks like, yeah, Death Becomes Her, 92. He, he's a guy who, you know, he obviously, you know, basically studied, for lack of a better word, under the tutelage of Steven, Sp- you know, Steven Spielberg kind of like championed him, brought him up. Um, although by the time he went through USC, he was already, you know, winning awards for his short films. And if you, people should seek them out. You can find his short films on YouTube, and they're, they're uniformly quite excellent. And he's a guy who's just so unbelievably reliable, clean, and economical in his filmmaking that I don't think he'll ever be considered or talked about amongst, you know, the great American cinematic visionaries. And, and that's kind of a shame, because I really think he's just quite the craftsman and his his technique and his approach is so sort of like quiet and effective and modest that um as a result you almost never see his fingerprints on anything you know like he really it's hard to think of him as an auteur he's probably more of a journeyman filmmaker but goddamn is he reliable and consistent and just i know the word i just keep coming back to is, is clean just a cleanliness to his to his approach every single time. He's made great movies, he's made good movies, and he's made not so good movies, but he's always made competent movies from the very, very beginning, I feel. Yeah, and you know, when he pushes the envelope, it seems to be he's doing it technically, right? Whether it's Beowulf or Polar Express or just stuff yeah. stuff he's doing in Forrest Gump or whatever. Yeah. He's he gets a little he does get a little up his own ass with some of the CG stuff. That seems to be where he wants to kind of push the envelope, and I think he's been less successful when he's gone down that road. I'm not nearly as interested in his animated stuff. Although again, not not bad and again quite competent, but just not I don't know, not as not as intriguing to me. Like, to me, Forrest Gump is his third best movie, and that sounds like a slight, but I'm putting it after Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I consider masterpieces. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, I do... I do. I do like Death Becomes Her quite a bit, so I don't know. That movie, that movie won a special effects Oscar. Let's talk about a uh, the screenwriting here, too, because I think that's pretty important have you ever read this book have not okay so the book is basically the the movie is the first half of the book and the book is pretty darn bad and so you have read the book i have read the book i read it when it like when the movie came out and it's 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 pretty stupid and bad he ends up going to the moon and there's like little mole people on the moon that he becomes friends with it's fucking (laughs) wow yeah it's fucking bizarre (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, I'll give credit to uh, who? Eric Roth is. It? No, who, no. Who is it? Eric Roth. Yeah. Eric, Eric Roth. Roth. Yeah. Give credit to the adaptation for finding sort of the seeds of the story here and really making it their own because uh, it could have gone off the rails if they stuck to the source material. And uh, just just reading the book, there, there's nothing in there that that's as emotional or like the relationships are not nearly as good. And it's just like a silly little Pixar esque farce. And to turn that into this sort of emotional roller coasters is, is pretty impressive. All of the various speeches given, you know, after every single award the film won, no one ever, like, thanked or mentioned the author of the book. I mean, he, he was paid, like, something like 300 grand for the rights, but he didn't get any back end or anything like that. I know there was a lot of controversy when he wasn't compensated after the movie turned out to be this runaway hit. So I don't know if that's a commentary on the, you know, on Eric Roth or Zemeckis or Paramount's relationship with that author. But uh, but yes, I have heard that before, that the movie is actually quite superior to the book. 
which is a rare thing. Yeah, and you know, Eric Roth has a nice little career. Um, he might win another Oscar this year, potentially, for A Star is Born. Yeah, he's, I mean, he had, you know, he made a couple of films with uh, Michael Mann. He, he made it at least one, he has at least one credited uh, film with um, Spielberg, which is Munich. And yeah, The Horse Whisperer, uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I mean, he's, he's had a weird sort of trajectory, and I think Forrest Gump will probably, for better or for worse, be the film that he is remembered for his association with, won an Oscar for it. Well, let's talk in a few years after Dune comes out. Oh, good point. He's involved with that, too, yeah. But yeah, I mean, just the same way that that Hanks has a very interesting tightrope to walk with personification of this character, I I think Roth has a a weird tightrope to walk in terms of how he handles all these run-ins with various uh, celebrities, political figures, and just the way that the movie deals with the passage of time. And his very, very elegant and workmanlike screenplay along with Zemeckis's handling of sort of the um, temporal trajectory of the whole thing and the surprisingly effective storyteller narrator style that the movie commits to which ordinarily I kind of bristle at a little bit even though the one feature film that I've made up to this point <laughs> used the exact same <laughs> device throughout it um, I think it's I think it's kind of a tough thing and I think oftentimes that the whole narrator deal can seem like a bit of a crutch and, and a uh, you know, lesser filmmakers can fall back on that, and uh, and can the movie can be sort of hindered by that sort of thing. But here, it somehow kind of works. It's because it's because everything that Gump is saying is so matter of fact and so kind of ironic in the way that it's reflected by what's actually going on historically. Right? It's his ignorance to what's going on in terms of history while he's talking about it, as opposed to like what we're actually seeing on screen. They also play with it a little bit too, just sort of the the narrator thing, like whether it's the different people on the bench. Or the sort of toying with the idea that maybe he's an unreliable narrator, and then sort of proving them wrong with the magazine cover, and yeah, then the I fact, that. That, and then the fact that the narration stops and he goes, he runs and is seeing Jenny, meeting back up with Jenny, like you know, two blocks down the road, right? So like that whole that whole thing is is fun and it makes it less sort of rote and cliche during it. So yeah, I I, I usually have some issues with with any of any narration voiceover stuff, but. I, th- I think it works pretty well here. Does this movie deserve to be on the list? Well, here's the thing. I just said that I consider it to be Zemeckis' third best movie, and I don't know if I necessarily think that all three of Zemeckis' best movies deserve to be on this list. So it would be. I, I, I feel like I would be kind of contradicting myself if I said this should be on the list, seeing as I feel like uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Back to the Future have more cause to be involved in this. So let me go ahead and, and cop out a little bit by saying this. I really enjoyed the movie. I was really surprised how much I enjoyed it. I'm not going to be as vitriolic against it when I talk about 1994 or films of the 90s as I have in the past. I'm not going to immediately jump all over Forrest Gump when I talk about you know, contextualizing Pulp Fiction or whatever. But I don't know if I would put it on the 100 greatest of all time, necessarily. I mean, if it was between this and those other two films that I mentioned, I'm going to go with those other two films, or I'm at least going to go with Back to the Future. I, I find this film really, really endearing, and I am surprised to say that I probably will re- revisit it pretty soon because I've been thinking about it a lot. 100 greatest of all time? I don't know. Probably not. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we're on the same page here. Uh, you know, I might not talk as much shit as I have in the past, I will bring up some of the problematic 
political things and overtones and implications that are going on here. I I get the hype. I understand why it was so popular. Yeah, I'm not going to be mad at it. Uh, I wouldn't put it on the list either. So um, it's interesting when looking back at this list. You know, we've had a few fil- films recently that signposts or whatever, right? So that they're like, there's, there's symbolic entries onto the list. And this movie doesn't really have anything that would warrant it being a symbolic entry, aside from the fact that it was beloved in its time and won Best Picture. But it's not like you know, Tom Hanks' greatest achievement or even Robert Zemeckis' greatest achievement or anything like that. So that all being said, no, doesn't deserve to be on the list. End of story. Well, I don't I, I don't know if we've even brought this up yet, but this movie has dropped five spots from uh, its position on the first on the 1997 list. And at the time, the movie only, only would have been three years old, right? It came out in 94. That first list was 97. So obviously we would have been flying high on gump fever in the 90s. Um, and it would make complete sense why people would be like, you know, instant masterpiece, instant classic, right? So it's not surprising that it's fallen since then. You actually would think it would have fallen maybe a little bit further since then. But I do think it's significant that, like, there was something to be said for how this movie really captured something in the 90s that really, really got under people's skin. And, um, and everybody just sort of rallied around. And like I said, it was this huge, huge unexpected hit. $678 million at the box office. Nominated for 13 Oscars, won six, uh, held the number one spot at the uh, domestic box office for 10 weeks in a row, which is something that just doesn't happen anymore, right? It's it's significant that it's so much higher than Pulp Fiction, because I think that Pulp Fiction is really a movie that has aged better and has a more fervent fan base and is not considered to be like a cult novelty. It's really considered to be, you know, a modern classic and maybe one of the you know five greatest films of the 90s it's interesting that Forrest Gump is still so much higher than it on this list yeah I I I was this movie is such as a subject matter thing it's subject matter I mean this movie is eternal you know people love this movie and you know non-insane movie geeks uh, a lot of people this is their favorite movie right this is a movie that families grew up with this is a movie that parents are showing to their kids you know young kids right and and, and it, it's uh, it's like the first prestige movie that I think a lot of parents are showing their kids and, and even people who weren't alive in 1994 grow up with this movie so like it makes sense that it's on the list it makes sense that people still love it It, it, it's not nearly as good as something like pulp fiction or even shawshank redemption shawshank redemption is higher we will we we won't get get to shawshank redemption for a little bit so that's that's significant that a movie that was basically a flop at the time but has risen in esteem to become this just beloved beloved you know like obviously has all the tbs tnt uh, IMDb top 200 stuff going for it, right? Yeah, and, and, like, and that, that's talk about movies that, just... that are people's number one favorite of all time. You hear like that, yeah. that's one of the that's one of the main ones you you get from you know medium film goers. So I would like to uh, I would like to read you a couple of quotes from a couple of journalists here really quickly. Okay, uh, just to show you the the scope of the divide uh, on this film, even at the time that it came out. Um, your boy Roger Ebert. Uh, in his very first review of Forrest Gump. It's a comedy, I guess, or maybe a drama, or a dream. The screenplay by Eric Roth has the complexity of modern fiction. The performance is a breathtaking balancing act between comedy and sadness in a story rich in big laughs and quiet truths. What a magical movie. Uh, Okay, now Janet Maslin, writing for the New York Times. Gump is a hollow man who is self-congratulatory in his blissful ignorance, warmly embraced as the embodiment of absolutely nothing. Not a fan. Well, here's the thing. I don't. I agree with both. Don't of them. Don't disagree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, hers is a little more of an indictment of the character itself, not necessarily the movie, but her review of the movie, needless to say, was not positive. Um, All right, now an Entertainment Weekly retrospective written in 2004. Nearly a decade after it earned, so this would be the this would be the ten year anniversary of the film coming out. Nearly a decade after it earned gazillions and swept the Oscars, Robert Zemeckis' ode to 20th century America still represents one of cinema's most clearly drawn lines in the sand. One half of folks see it as an artificial piece of pop melodrama, while everyone else raves that it's sweet as a box of chocolates. <laughs> so we don't have to go too far down this rabbit hole, but is is this movie conservative? Chest poundingly conservative film? Is it? anti-liberal because basically it draws jenny's journey through you know hippiedom as kind of a downward spiral uh yeah i think it is i I think it is and again like it's it's probably not the case that that's what zemeckis and eric roth set out to do but they sort of probably accidentally made the move yeah backdoored it you know again like right at the start sort of tossing aside as a joke the ku klux klan association with his name yeah forgot about that um just just the the general nobility of of the vietnam war here or the sort of not playing up how how brutal and and terrible this event in our our history was sort of the anti-60s counterculture and the you know the the looking the anti looking down upon or, or like at the very least making light of the civil rights movement stuff yes segregation is never even really mentioned during the stuff in his childhood even though he lives in the deep south it's sort of like a baby boomer conservative dream of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps even if the the things you've earned are pure luck you know like that sort of thing is like oh conservatives might look at this movie like he earned all this stuff like he's a simple man and he set out to do things and he took advantage of his opportunities and blah 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 whereas i would say he just got fucking lucky all the time in this movie right <laughs> like yeah. the, the whole football thing was luck and randomness like the ping pong thing i guess he happened to be good at i mean that that's one of the moments in the movie where it's like it, it's almost it's almost farcical because it doesn't it's <laughs> like whatever the bubblegum shrimp he all the other boats like get lost in the storm and he luckily survived and i guess that's god shining down upon this beacon of, of of innocence and conservatism uh winning out and then like the running across country stuff is also sort of random and, and weird even though that's that's fun and heartwarming i would say it's a conservative movie a lot of conservative circles have embraced the movie as their own but i'm not I, i'm not going to go out and say that that was the point of the movie especially from eric roth and robert zemeckis although i could be wrong yeah i mean there is something almost kind of messianic about his his divinity, you know, or his his place in in the world. To say that like everything is luck. I mean, he he obviously has this ability to run. He has this ability to sustain in ways that few people can, right? And so he's able to literally run back and forth across the country, which is one of my favorite sequences in the whole thing. It's patently ridiculous, but it's a really I mean, it's it's kind of like Zemeckis really firing on all cylinders and James Horner's score just absolutely reaching its, you know, I- iconic peaks. And um, and I think that, you know, sort of like the theme, the message of the movie kind of gets summed up in that sequence, which is that like this guy just he will persevere. He will sustain. He will keep moving forward in this very, very decent way. And uh, when everybody else gets distracted by the things in the world, he will stay on literally like the straight and narrow path and run until he runs into an ocean. Not that that's necessarily a you know, that's not a lifestyle all of us can necessarily embrace. But I do think like there is something to be said for that representing kind of like uh, ideological climax of the film in a lot of ways. The emotional climax will come with he and his son 
of course, and the and the final sort of love letter to Jenny on her um, uh, at her gravesite. But I really feel like the movie kind of like finalizes its its message when he's running cross country. Speaking of his son, second time Haley Joel Osment has shown up on this list, right? How about that? That guy's legacy is you know is is intact. Yeah, he's a very smart little kid in this movie. <laughs> Very Haley Joel Osmenty in this film. <laughs> yes, he is that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's fun that that he's involved. Was this his first movie? I read. I don't know if it was his first movie, but I read Zemeckis saw him in a Pizza Hut commercial, and that's <laughs> that's where he snagged him from. So, but you can certainly draw. I mean, you know, obviously, with if it wasn't for this, he, he never gets six cents. So, it, it's an interesting film. It's a very American film. It's a very there's a lot of complex issues that it brings up, not just politically but also sort of artistically but in that regard it's it's been one of the ones i've most looked forward to revisiting and talking about just to put one more button on on the politics of it i mean i've argued many a time that you know not every movie has to be symbolic of something not every character has to be symbolic of anything and if you if you take this movie like that then i think that's totally fine obviously right it's just a simple guy going through the world not paying attention to the the, the changes that are really happening around him but when someone says, oh, Jenny's odyssey in this movie is uh, is reason enough to not embrace progressiveness or liberalism, and it shows you what happens when you, you know, go into the counterculture, like, I think that's a bunch of bullshit, right? Yeah, J- Jenny's story is interesting, and I think that's the thing that people point to, whether they're arguing if this movie is political or not. And, and she has her own, I mean, she's she has basically her own movie that we're just getting snippets of, right? I mean, she's... That's its whole. That's a whole other movie I'd love to see. Like the entire Jenny journey is its own thing. I mean, granted, we've seen that trajectory in plenty of, you know, period pieces from the '60s and '70s. Many of them involving rock and roll or pornography, for that matter. Uh, organized crime. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but but that's kind of its own thing. But to go, uh, you know, we go from a film that uh, kind of doesn't really deal with segregation or race relations to one that will explicitly deal with race relations and segregation in the South. Number seventy-five in the heat of the night. Um, yeah, stay tuned. We'll be uh, we'll be back soon with that. And uh, this wraps up AFI Top One Hundred list number seventy-six. Forrest Gump. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye.